Well, good morning. It's great to be back together. Uh, at least those of us who are here today will look forward to being back together next week as a, a church, as Richard mentioned earlier. But uh, it is our joy this morning to come back to the Word of God, to our study of the book of Matthew, and particularly the end of Matthew chapter 4. On March 10th of this year, just as the coronavirus pandemic was sweeping across our nation and shutting everything down, the Sacramento Bee ran a headline stating, California megachurch cancels faith-healing hospital visits citing coronavirus. The article reports that Bethel Church in Redding, California, worldwide renowned because of their music ministry, their Bethel uh, music production, uh, a church that actually has uh, something called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, even teaches a class on, on how to perform miracles. The church, according to the Sacramento Bee, was, quote, advising the faithful to wash their hands, urging those who feel sick to stay at home, canceling missionary trips, and advising its faith healers to stay away from local hospitals. A healing ministry apparently shut down in the face of real disease. It was just a couple months ago that Bethel was in the news again when one of the daughters or the daughter of one of their worship leaders, a two-year-old, tragically died. Her name was Olive. And on the day of Olive's death, her parents uh, took to social media to declare their confidence that God was going to raise their daughter from the dead. They, along with their worldwide support team, began to pray unceasingly for Olive's resurrection on uh, December 14th. A day passed, uh, another day, and then a third day. A fourth day, a fifth day, each coming with more calls for prayer around the world until finally on the sixth day, they accepted the reality of her passing and the, and the uh, fact that she would not be raised from the dead. Now we can feel nothing but sympathy for a family that goes through such a tragic experience and we take no delight or uh, uh, in no way rejoice over their pain. But we also feel a great deal of pain for having the name of Christ mocked by these kinds of pseudo-healing ministries. They show themselves powerless again and again in the face of real disease, real weakness, real death. And the real tragedy is time and again when families who are suffering through these crises, suffering through these events, when they ought to be surrounded by the loving care of a church family or a people of God... So many times they are set up for even greater pain and disappointment as they are pumped again and again with these false claims of miracle workings which never come true and just multiplies and deepens the reality of the pain that they've gone through. Unfortunately, that same cruel trick is played again and again countless times over in city after city, continent after continent, all around the world, propagated by false teachers and pseudo-healers. They're crusades which are full of emotional music and gimmicks, but they're empty of any real healing. They claim to mirror the miraculous work of the Messiah, but unfortunately, they only make a mockery of Him. 
Well, last week we took some time to introduce the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. It was powerful. It was pervasive. It was authentic. If you remember, it authenticated him as a true spokesman for God. And if you were with us last week, you remember this brief summary of his ministry in Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25. Let me just read this passage for us one more time. Matthew 4, 23. He says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, it's a very brief account, but as we said last week, this encompasses a lengthy section, a year and a half of Jesus' ministry, a broad description of that ministry of his, which we titled as the mission of the Messiah last week. And we've been taking our time to look at it carefully because Matthew places it here, not just as a fast forward over some meaningless section of Jesus' life and ministry, but he puts it here as a kind of statement of Jesus' credentials, a summary of the evidence of his authority to speak the way he speaks and to teach on the things about which he teaches, especially those related to the Sermon on the Mount, the very next verse in Matthew's gospel. Matthew places it here so that when we hear Jesus make the statements that he's going to make and explain everything he's going to explain about life, about you, about your standing before God, about righteousness, about the pathway to hell and the pathway to heaven. When he explains all of that, you can have confidence that what he says is true. You'll understand that among all the people who may try to tell you something about your life, among all the people who may try to tell you about the way you ought to live, the way you ought to think, about the realities of death and life and eternity, among all of those people, the one man that you should listen to, the one man that you should believe is this man, because he's the man who demonstrated power over corruption, disease, deformity, death, even itself. So we started to take a look at this summary last week. We started to take a look at his credentials, the summary of his first year and a half of ministry. It gives us this big picture, this overall mission and purpose of the Messiah. And we identified two basic components that Matthew presents to us here. The first one, as we looked at last week, was his proclamation of the kingdom of God. Matthew tells us in verse 23 that Jesus went through all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This would have been over 200 villages spread throughout all of northern Israel. And he went about announcing and explaining this kingdom, its coming and its nature. It wasn't simply enough to announce it. He also needed to explain it. Because not only Israel, but so many people throughout all the years, they have so many 
preconceptions about what heaven is and how you enter into heaven and how you would want to meet God one day when you die. The Jews had these misconceptions as much as anyone. Not misconceptions so much about the external nature of this kingdom, but misconceptions about its internal nature. They misunderstood its spiritual character. They misunderstood its spiritual qualities. And so as we saw last week, Jesus' message included not only announcements about the kingdom, but also uh, this call to repent. Repent, as we saw back in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was not only announcing the kingdom, but he was explaining that Israel is spiritually unprepared for this kingdom. And he was teaching them what it meant to be prepared for the kingdom. And of course, a great deal of the teaching that Jesus gave to them is captured in the Sermon on the Mount as he drives home the spiritual requirements that are necessary for you to enter into the kingdom of God one day. But Jesus' mission was not only uh, that of proclaiming this kingdom, explaining this kingdom, but it also involves, secondly, a preview of this kingdom, a preview of the kingdom of God. Matthew gives this in very broad and sweeping descriptions about Jesus' healing ministry, which he performed for all those who were afflicted, all of those who were suffering, all of those who were demon-possessed. It represented an incredible moment in the opportunity, uh, excuse me, incredible moment and opportunity for people in, uh, who lived in Israel, who lived in Galilee and all the surrounding regions, because almost everyone experienced this life of suffering and affliction when you came down with sickness, you had no uh, advanced medical care, you had no options, you had no really recourse but simply to ride out the illness and hope that somehow you would recover. Medicines, treatments were primitive, mortality rates were extremely high, life expectancy, life expectancy was low, 50 years perhaps at best. And if you had chronic diseases or long-term disabilities, many times your only option was just to accept the fate of your condition. There was no therapy. There was no remedial uh, uh, surgeries. There was nothing to be done. I spent some time last week really trying to help us understand the exaggerated nature of this in Jesus' life and time. To understand just what a difficulty this would have been for those who were living in those times. To give a clear picture of the state of health care and disease that would have confronted the citizen of the first century. There were no antibiotics. There were no anti-malarials. And yet, at the same time, these kinds of plagues were sweeping across their land. People suffered from all kinds of diseases. Smallpox uh, was a major threat. Typhoid, malaria were rampant killers. People suffered from skeletal injuries, compressed vertebrae. As I said last week, work environments were often uh, involving heavy lifting with no real safety equipment. And so there were frequent injuries that were debilitating for lifetimes, not to mention congenital diseases. Broken bones, which today are so easily set and dealt with, often led to long-term disabilities, particularly among the feet and legs. 
there, there appeared to be a high prevalency of epilepsy, which probably reflected a large number of head injuries or brain disorders, which just simply could not be treated. And people plagued constantly by dysentery, parasites, intestinal disorders because of a lack of clean drinking water. Of course, even with all of our modern medical technology, we're still plagued by all of these kinds of things more than we would want to. We're grateful, of course, where the Lord has granted us the blessings of medical care. But it still puts a tremendous strain on us and on our economy and on our personal budget. This year, health care spending is expected to hit 20% of the gross national product of the United States. One out of every $5 in the U.S. is being spent on health care, on medicine, on treatment. So that reflects an enormous drain, not only on the productivity of our nation and our lifestyles in terms of dollars, but even in terms of pain and suffering, all of that treatment that, that it represents, it still represents a, an enormous a burden that we have to live with day in and day out. But the reality is, God never intended any of this. None of this was his design. He didn't design the world to be so burdened by disease and, and disorder and disability. When you read the opening chapters of the Bible, particularly in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created all things and he declared them all to be good. The world was well ordered. There were no threats. There was no suffering. There was no disease. But of course, it didn't stay that way. We know because of the entrance of sin, because of the fall of Adam and Eve and the fall of humanity, it marred everything. And as a part of that fall, God cursed the earth. God declared in Genesis 3.17, cursed is the earth or the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. And that represents not only an agricultural reality, it represents a bacterial reality, a viral reality, a, 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 meteorolo a meteorological reality. The world was plunged under a curse. It was, it was thrown into chaos. It now develops all kinds of obstacles and aggravations and frustrations for mankind. As Paul says in Romans 8.20, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 3, excuse me. But even since the fall, creation has continued in this decline, this state of futility and frustration. The word in Romans is literally a word for emptiness. It's not complete emptiness, but it's really a lack of ability, an inability for creation to fulfill and, and, and complete and do what God has called it to do. It's an inability of creation to be everything that God wanted it to be. It's futile. It's frustrated in itself. There are still reflections of God's glory as if through a broken mirror. We still see the stars. We still see the sun and the trees and the mountains. We still see the glory even of the human body. And we understand that all of those things reflect on the glory of God. 
but the pain and the suffering of mankind is still there. All the disease and all the deformity that surrounds us all the time makes life such a struggle. None of it was the original design. None of it is the way God intends the world to be. Creation was designed to provide a constant environment of blessing and provision and comfort and care, protection for men and women, not the pain and suffering that we experience in this age. So creation fall, uh, fell, I should say, and when it fell, fell it, it failed or continues to fail in God's original designs. Our bodies fail. Our bodies are fallen from their original design. Disease and disability are not a part of what God intends for you and I. But the good news is that while creation is fallen, it is also ordained for restoration. God has initiated a plan for restoration in creation. He initiated a plan to reverse the corruption that came with the fall of mankind. He initiated a plan to restore health and protection and well-being to our weak and fallen bodies. And this is outlined over and over again in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. It looks forward to this time of restoration, this time of, of uh, blessing, this time of reversal for the curse, a time of restoration which is associated with the kingdom of God. It was a kingdom that at first was promised to Israel, but a kingdom that was always described as encompassing the whole world. It would bring restoration and healing, not just to the people of Palestine. It would bring restoration and healing. It would bring wholeness and, and uh, completeness. It would bring health and prosperity to the whole earth through Israel, through the Messiah. Revelation 21 verse 3 speaks about this. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Isaiah 25, verse 8 says, He swallowed up death forever. The Lord God wiped away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He'll take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 65, verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. All of this speaks about a physical restoration, a physical renewal that's to take place on the face of the earth. Even Paul in Romans 8.20 goes on to talk about this, that while the, the creation has been subjected to futility, he says it was in hope. In hope, he says, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God not only cursed the ground and cursed the earth, but He cursed it with a ray of hope. 
He gave it hope. He gave it an expectation that one day it will be restored. One day it's, it, it, the creation itself will be, be set free from its bondage to corruption just like you and I will be set free from our bondage to corruption. Again, this is literally everywhere throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, which gives so much attention to celebrating the Messianic age. Isaiah 29, verse 17, it says, It is not yet a very little while when, uh, a while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the unfruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom of darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among the people will exult in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, verse 2, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have been anxious in heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. All of this is what God had promised. He'd promised it from the very beginning. He had reiterated it again and again throughout all of the prophets in the Old Testament. This was the expectation of every Jew, of everyone who knew their Old Testament. As they suffered through all of the anguish of this life, as they suffered through the thorns and the thistles of this world, they understood that there was a hope a coming day when the world would be restored. And for a brief period of time, for just a couple of years, this reality was visible on the earth. While Jesus was ministering publicly for three years, the blessings of the kingdom became a reality. The physical curse of sin that brought disease and disability to so many people was being reversed. People were being restored, blind. The blind were receiving their sight. The lame were walking. The deaf were having their hearing restored. There was no more tears. Sorrow and pain was being wiped away. The curse of sin was being reversed. The kingdom was being put on display in a preview fashion. The language of Matthew here. The language that he uses is really remarkable. He tells us that Jesus was healing, in verse 23, every disease and every affliction among the people. For those of you who are Greek students, this is uh, the um, adjective pasan with the anarthrous nouns emphasizing the individual members within the broader class. This is technical language, in other words, basically saying that every means every. He was not limiting his healing to just a few 
carefully selected people. This wasn't some pseudo-healer like you see today who so often sort of screen out in the process those who are coming to them and they'll have a crew of people who are weeding out the difficult cases. You see, none of that in Jesus' healing ministry. He didn't limit himself to a few select times during the year, a few select locations. He healed throughout the course of his travels. Everywhere he went in Galilee, he seemed to have healed everyone who came to him. It was unlimited in its scope and number. In fact, when it comes to Jesus' healing ministry, there are so many features of it that set him apart from what you see in the common faith healers of today. In fact, Matthew makes the point that he was set apart from any pseudo-healer even in his own day. Over in chapter 9, verse 32, it says, As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never! was anything like this seen in Israel. This was remarkable. This was unlike anything that had ever been seen anywhere. It was like, uh, unlike anything that's been seen since. His healing was unique. It was distinct. It set him apart. In fact, you could note seven features, I believe, that make Jesus distinct from modern healers. A number of people have taken note of the pervasiveness, the abundance of Jesus' ministry. We've already mentioned it here. He healed everyone. He, um, you didn't have a majority of people coming to some sort of crusade and leaving at the end of this day, still suffering with their disabilities, walking home going home in disappointment. Matthew's language is that this was definitive. It was categorical. He healed every disease, every affliction, so much so that word was, uh, uh, was sweeping outside of Galilee into the surrounding regions because of the effectiveness of his ministry. Second, Jesus healed organic and congenital diseases. As numerous people have pointed out throughout the years, which is so different from modern-day pseudo-healers who, apart from the psychosomatic illnesses that respond so easily to a suggestion of the faith healer, no one is ever healed at their crusades. Their methods are no different than the pseudo-healers of false religions and and even atheistic healers. Gennado Rutsko, a famous superstar healer in Russia in the late 20th century who had no claim to healing, had a nationwide following. People would flock to his crusades in droves where he would psychologically manipulate through suggestive techniques and create a psychological phenomenon where people temporarily believed that they were healed and felt better only to return in the days to come and weeks to come to their same ailment. Much of the supposed success of faith healers follows the same sort of playbook. All kinds of preconditioning, pre-selection, manipulation among the crowds who come 
with a heightened sense of expectation and hopes of some miracle being performed and, and maybe a, a, a placebo-type effect. It makes them feel better for a while, but they're not really healed. Diseases, doctors know, can be categorized into one of two types, functional or organic. Dr. Eric Chico explains the difference between these. He says this, quote, a functional disease is one associated with a change in a function of a bodily organ or tissue without any tissue damage. An organic disease is one associated with a demonstrable change in a bodily organ or tissue. Therefore, in dealing with functional diseases such as high blood pressure, addictions, low back pain syndrome, or most headaches, there's no demonstrable tissue damage, and yet the organ or tissue is certainly not functioning as it should. By contrast, organic diseases such as broken bones, paralysis from severed nerves, congenital malfunctions, coronary artery disease evidence a very clear change in tissue. Medical science can demonstrate these changes through the use of x-ray evaluation, MRI, nerve condition studies, and so forth. Symptoms are indeed present in both. The difference is whether there's demonstrable tissue damage or not. It is the difference between a painful arm being caused by a sprain or strain or caused by a broken bone. One additional point we need to understand is that in all diseases, both functional or, or, and organic, there exists an emotional component. It is this emotional component that elicits a true psychological, uh, uh, excuse me, physiological response, such as seen in the placebo effect. This response, along with the fact that many symptoms are very much subjective, is responsible for patients experiencing decreased pain with a broken bone, decreased insulin requirements with diabetes, decreased frequency of chest pain or pressure in episodes of coronary artery disease, etc. End quote. Richard Mayhew in his book, The Healing Promise, comments then, in the highly festive and emotional charged in atmosphere of faith healing services, the brain can be stimulated to release endorphins into the nervous system, which science says are pain suppressants 200 times more potent than morphine at times. This is why people can honestly say the pain is gone and sincerely believe they are healed until the effects of the emotion and the endorphins wears off hours or days later. End quote. This is so different than what you see in Jesus' ministry. What he healed were organic diseases. What he changed were visible issues of tissue damage, bone deformation, fractures of the vertebrae, of the skull. Which brings up a third feature in Jesus' healing which makes him so distinct from modern-day pseudo-healers, which is the fact that he healed completely. He healed completely. There were no partial healings. There was no recuperative period. People didn't feel marginally better when they uh, left the crusade. No one needed days or weeks to recover. I was looking at a video even this week of a healing service and a, a lady with cerebral uh, palsy who was in a wheelchair and 
They were lifting her up by her arms and trying to stand her on her debilitated feet and and she couldn't obviously straighten her legs or stand at all. And they were asking her, does it feel better at all? Is there any relief at all? And she thought, well, maybe, maybe so. And immediately the healer proclaims to the cloud, we have a healing. She says there's no more pain. Her legs, her body left the crusade just as dysfunctional, just as disabled, just as bound to the wheelchair as she ever was before. Jesus' healings were nothing like that. There, were, there was no need for a recuperative period. There was no partial healing. His healings were utterly complete. People were cured of afflictions on the spot, which highlights just a fourth difference is the fact that his healings were instantaneous. The afflicted who were brought to Jesus were immediately brought to complete health. There were no relapses. There were no excuses. There was no appeal to misdiagnosis as you find so many times with pseudo healers today. With only three exceptions in Christ's ministry, people were healed instantly. And even with the exceptions, the delay was in terms of seconds or minutes, not in terms of hours or days or months. Fifth, Jesus' healings involved even resurrections as a statement of his power and a statement of the comprehensive nature of his healing. He raised people from the dead, which just highlights a sixth feature of his healing, which sets him apart from the pseudo healers of today, which is the fact that faith wasn't necessary. People didn't need to express faith in order to be healed. Obviously, a dead person cannot express faith in order to be healed which is so different than the pseudo-healers of today who, when they fail time and time again, routinely blame it on the lack of faith from the afflicted person, burdening their conscience with greater guilt and shame over their own inability to find the wherewithal to heal themselves. Jesus healed multitudes, which in turn... It becomes obvious as you progress through his ministry, the vast majority of them never believed in him. The vast majority of them ultimately rejected him. In Luke 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers, and yet only one of them comes back. Having been healed, he healed all of them, but only one of them comes back to worship and give thanks. In Luke 17, 7, Jesus asks, Were there not 10 who were cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to the leper, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. He was the only one who had faith. The other nine apparently didn't. So his healing wasn't dependent on anyone's faith because he had power to heal. And finally, probably most compelling was Jesus' healing was so profoundly powerful that even his enemies could not deny it. Everyone was amazed. Everyone was astounded, even his enemies. They were unable to discredit. They were unable to deny, even though they would have loved to do so. In John, John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, 
John tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In John chapter 3, when a well-known Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God has with him. They couldn't deny it. They, they, they couldn't discredit him because his ministry of healing was so abundant. It was so obvious. It was so powerful, visible, verifiable. The evidence was, was absolutely in front of their eyes. They didn't even bother to have to ask for any additional evidence. They couldn't deny because he was actually doing it. They couldn't discredit him because his claims were not false. So the best they could do was claim he was doing this perhaps by the power of Satan, particularly in the area of casting out demons which Matthew even includes here in his description, verse 24, they brought him the sick and those afflicted by various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons. Demon possession is a sort of a unique category, but it, it always comes associated with physical ailments, seizures, bleeding, people being bent over apparently with skeletal disorders. Demon possession itself was not particularly abundant in ancient Israel, just like it isn't in our own day. In fact, there's not a single instance of a demon-possessed person or an exorcism recorded anywhere in the Old Testament. It just isn't there at all. Not a single one. And when you come to the New Testament, with one exception, all of the accounts of demon-possessed people occur in areas that were dominated not by Jews, but by pagan idolatry. They took place in the cities of the Decapolis or in areas of Galilee that were in close contact with Greek and Roman idolatry. That makes sense when you understand the close association that the Bible makes between demon activity and false worship of idols. Deuteronomy 32, for example, talks about how Israel stirred God to jealousy during their early days by worshiping false idols it says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods they had never known to new gods that had come recently that same idea is reiterated in psalm 106 verse 37 which again talks about israel it says that they mixed with other nations and learned to do as they did verse 36 says they served their idols which became a snare to them, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. So it appears that religious idolatry opens up a more direct door, as it were, to demonic activity in someone's life. Even in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, Paul tells the Corinthians who had recently come out of an idolatrous background and were trying to figure out how to navigate through the pagan idolatrous society that surrounded them. And Paul tells them there in 1 Corinthians 10, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons 
and not to God. And I would not have you be participants with demons, he says. This is why you don't see demonically possessed people throughout the Old Testament, even while sometimes the leadership of Israel tended to guide them down a pathway uh, mixing in idolatry with their own monotheism, they were largely, uh, excuse me, they were rarely completely dominated by idolatry throughout their history, at least not like their pagan neighbors. And it's why, by the way, you don't see many demon possessions in Western society like you would find in more idolatrous or animistic peoples in developing countries around the world because demons are particularly associated with pagan idolatrous worship. So, Jesus, even in his healing ministry, when he did go into those areas of pagan idolatry, when he did go into those areas of Galilee that were dominated by Gentiles, when he did encounter demons, he demonstrated his utter authority over them. He cast them out with just a word. There were no elaborate incantations or rituals that are needed. When you look into the ancient religious texts of Mesopotamia or, or the apocryphal works of the Second Temple period or, or uh, of Babylon, when you look into all of those things, you see all of these elaborate ceremonies and rituals that people would would uh, resort to for the alleviation of problems with demons. There were people trying to exorcise demons with the smoke of fish intestines, or they would try to draw demons out through the nasal canal with the root of some magical plant. But Jesus had none of that. He just spoke a word. And it was powerful and it was sufficient. So this was Jesus' healing ministry. It was abundant. It was taking place everywhere. And as Matthew says in verse 25, great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, which was a federation of about 10 cities. The largest was Scythopolis, which was located on the western side of the Jordan River, but the rest, the other nine cities were all on the eastern side in what would be considered today modern-day Jordan. They were largely uh, uh, Gentile pagan places, pagan cities, and yet they were coming to Jesus' ministry for healing. Matthew mentions that they were coming from Jerusalem and Judea down in the south and even from beyond the Jordan, which again uh, would be a reference to modern-day Jordan. Matthew had already mentioned back in verse 23 at the beginning that Jesus' ministry had reached all the way up to Syria, to areas like Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea Philippi. All of these were utterly pagan areas, largely Gentile areas, and even they were experiencing healing. This was a snapshot. This was a picture of what God has in store for the world, for humanity. It was a preview of the kingdom to come. This was what Jesus was announcing. This was the good news that he was telling everyone that God's kingdom was at hand. And he was giving them a demonstration of what this kingdom could be like, what it will be like. But unfortunately, even with all of that, with all the evidence, with all the validation, 
with all the authentication of Jesus as a messenger, a true messenger of God, Israel still rejected him. They rejected him, and consequently, they rejected the kingdom. Like so many reject him today, they want this life of healing. They want this life of restoration. They want the eradication of pain and suffering. They want the removal of tears and sorrow. They just don't want the Savior. And they don't want the King. Well, Jesus' message is there is no kingdom without the King. This world will never come apart from Him. And it will come in full degree when He returns. This time, not to be rejected by those who have rejected Him, but this time, to act as their judge. To bring about His wrath and vengeance on all those who have spurned Him. So many, they want this kingdom, but they don't know the way for entrance into it. They still don't understand what is required. What does God want from them? How do they come to experience that joy? How can they enter that kingdom when it comes? But Jesus will tell us, beginning in the next few verses, the Sermon on the Mount, He will tell us exactly what God is seeking, exactly what God requires if you ever want to enter this kingdom. I hope you can be with us in the coming weeks to hear directly from this man, the one who healed so many diseases and so many afflictions, the one, the only one who was able to give a preview of this kingdom, the only one who's able to deliver it upon his return. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're so eager for that day, so eager for the time when this kingdom, which was proclaimed by our Messiah, which was previewed by our Messiah, when it will become sight. When we who suffer under the curse and labor under the effects of sin, when we are finally set free from our corruption, Lord, we pray that you would bring this kingdom quickly. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand. Help us to believe, to set our hope and our faith on that day. And Lord, we pray for any who are unprepared for the kingdom. We pray that they would hear the message of the Messiah. That you would prepare their hearts to receive your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.